9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Uh, We are joined today by several uh, leading political commentators. Uh, We are going to look at the situation in American politics, not just in this extraordinary week, but in this very important month ahead of us. Uh, We're joined, I believe, from Ontario at the moment by David Frum of The Atlantic. Hi, David. I'm in Washington at the moment. I'm just back from Ontario. Oh, you're in Washington at the moment. Oh, all right. Well, there you go. Uh, well, we're joined uh, in Washington by David Frum of The Atlantic, and we're also joined in Washington, I think, by Norm Ornstein of the American Enterprise Institute. Hi, Norm. How are you? Um, okay, David. I'm actually in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware at the moment. Oh, man. I am, you know, 0 for 2 so far. Um, uh, well, good for you. Rehoboth Beach is the, uh, it soon will be the Eastern White House or something like that. Isn't, isn't Joe Biden's house near there someplace? Joe Biden's house is about two miles from where I am. Um, yeah, well, so there, it's going to become very exciting for you, possibly. Uh, well, I guess that's the, the the thrust of this, and and the place I'd like to begin is, uh, and I'll start with you, Norm, and 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 then go to David. You know, one of the troubles of of this period of time is is what I call the fog of Trump. Uh, every day there is some new outrage. Sometimes there are multiple new outrages. It's very hard to sort out what's important from what is just um, uh, making one extremely angry or frustrated. Uh, this week is a perfect example of it. We've had multiple developments this week, um, ranging from the uh, sad death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the rush to replace her. Uh, to the president saying he would not guarantee a peaceful transition of power, uh, to more shenanigans uh, from uh, Bill Barr. And what I'd like to ask each of you guys to begin with is, among the things that have happened just in the past few days, what do you think is really important? So let me start with just an observation, David, based on what you said. What makes this presidency extraordinary in so many ways is the level of corruption, uh, the regular statements that are outrageous, that we're flooded with them. And what ends up happening is the press corps and the public get deadened to each of them. So no matter how outrageous it is, it gets shrugged off. It's one of the things that frustrates me about the nature of the press corps, because of the two things that were most disturbing this week, One was Trump's uh, statement that basically he would not commit to abiding by the results of the election and that the only way it would be fair is if he won. Uh, Now that should have raised alarm bells, sent everybody to DEFCON 1, and it was, oh, just another stupid thing that he said. The second, of course, and, and that's been reinforced in so many other ways that creates a clear and present threat, I believe, the the fundamentals of our society and system. The uh, way in which not just Mitch McConnell, but uh, 
50 other Republicans in the Senate reacted to the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, including at least 20 who uh, basically violated their pledges from the past, lied openly about confirming a new justice and committed to voting for whoever Trump nominated before the nomination even was made. And the consequences of that, a six to three court with potentially five real radicals and uh, the prospect, as the president himself said, uh, of having a ninth justice. So if they had to rule on the election, what could be a Bush v. Gore on steroids, uh, that he would have a pretty comfortable majority. You put those things together and uh, it's not made this a good week. Uh, no question. David, what do, you, what do you think were the headlines of this week that we should stay focused on, not be distracted away from? As so often with Donald, with the Donald Trump presidency, there there are two things that are true. Um, one is uh, nothing happens, and the other is that everything happens. So the basic grammar of this presidency has been the same from the beginning. Uh, Donald Trump uh, is the most unpopular first-term president in the history of polling. There has not been a day of his presidency when a substantial majority of the American people were not opposed to him. And he has understood that. Um, and has governed himself accordingly. He has never tried uh, to extend, enlarge his reach. Maybe he understands that that's impossible. Maybe it's not his nature. Um, and what he's he's had two projects. One is to steal as much as he can uh, while president, and the other is to try to exploit pre-existing weak spots in America's democratic architecture um, to hold on to power in the face of the fact that he is so unpopular. And his effect on the American political system, and this is what Norm is talking about, is um, his main, the main impact of Donald Trump on his party has been to, been to make his party less hypocritical than it used to be. Um, Re Republicans always understood that they were the small two coalitions in the United States. But that was, they understood it, but they didn't articulate it. Um, and uh, that they that sometimes they would respond to that by trying to expand the coalition, as uh, presidents like Dwight Eisenhower and Ronald Reagan were able to do. Sometimes they they cope with that by um, you know uh, raising difficulties to participation. But we have never until now seen um, Republicans face up to the idea. You know, our, our actually the key to our survival, as we are now constituted, is to ensure that you know, a goodish chunk of the American electorate is forbidden to participate in politics. So that he has, Trump, because he is so explicitly anti-democratic, has pulled Republicans to be equally explicitly anti-democratic. Um, and, and that's a problem because that hypocrisy was one of the things that soothed the edges. You could, when people, hypocrites are people capable of shame. If they weren't shamed, ashamed, they wouldn't bother to be hypocrites. They would say, yeah, right, I, I, I did it. I, I did it. I kicked the puppy. You know, uh, I'm a bad dad. Uh, I don't care. You say what you want. Um, the hypocrite cares what you what you say. Um, so we have gone in this weekend into an ever more explicit uh, project of holding on to power by preventing large numbers of people from voting, by making sure that the votes are not fairly counted, and by looking for ways to stay in power anyway. So maybe the news of the week um, is that many Republicans have said, okay, if uh, after everything we do, if you still can't produce an electoral college majority, we are not going to support you and outright define an electoral college majority. And that's probably the way it would happen. The, the, the challenge that America faces is that um, there is a big electoral 
project to shape an electoral college majority in ways that defy many people's sense of fairness. Norm, um, I, I think both of you have described the past week in, in exceptionally well. Um, how serious is the threat to American democracy right now? I mean, is this hysteria, Trump's a bully, he talks about there won't be a transition, he laughs it off as I, as I saw one story report. Um, but, you know, he's a, he's a typical bully and at push comes to shove, somebody stands up to him, he backs down. Or is this really an existential issue for the Republican Party, as David just described it, um, in which they have no choice but to undermine democracy? Because if democracy is allowed to go on its way, demography go on its way, the majority have their way, they don't have a future. Well, first, I, I do believe that we face a serious and real and present danger to the fundamentals of our system. And it's not just Donald Trump, it's his attorney general. Uh, I've taken to calling this the Department of Injustice. Uh, what we saw just uh, a day or two ago, uh, there were nine ballots that were uh, presumed lost in Pennsylvania that were in fact military ballots sent in, but without the inner secrecy envelope that's supposed to go in uh, inside the outer envelope. And uh, the uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court recently ruled that uh, those votes should be invalidated. The election officials uh, thought that these were applications actually and opened up the ballots. If the secrecy ballot had been inside, no problem but they saw the votes and so they didn't count them. Now this was an innocent mistake by election officials, but it was also a mistake by the voters. This was treated as fraud by the US attorney in Pennsylvania who made a big deal out of it, who talked about an ongoing investigation and revealed who these people had voted for, which violates every standard and I raise this only because it tells us that if you have a justice department that is not going to stand for justice, but is in effect the lawyers for the president, no matter what he tries to do, that is a real threat. Now, beyond that, we know that we've had one senator, Mitt Romney, who came out with a definitive statement uh, challenging President Trump's comments that he wouldn't abide by an election result or commit to it, and many other statements that were, to put it kindly, mealy-mouthed, that did not take that firm stand. The only way the system survives with our independent checks and balances is if we have institutions that provide boundaries. I don't believe the Supreme Court can be counted on to provide those boundaries. The independence of justice and the justice system the degree to which the intelligence community has been compromised. One other small event this week, Trump nominated an inspector general for the intelligence community, who was the chief lieutenant for Devin Nunez, who is in the pocket of Vladimir Putin. And that suggests we're gonna have uh, another uh, attempt to intimidate intelligence officials as the Russians move to try and put their thumb on the scales of the election. There are so many warning signs here, David, that we can't just brush this aside as bloviating on the part of the president or believe that 
what we've always expected, that everybody will stand up at least for the fundamental sanctity of the system, will hold here. Uh, we're in a, a very dangerous place. Uh, David, uh, the publication that you work with, The Atlantic, ran a story by Bart Gelman this week, uh, which described kind of how the process of delegitimizing the election would work. And, and it wasn't just speculation. It was a well-reported piece that indicated these wheels are turning. It suggests that the, not only the next four or five weeks before the election, but the four or five weeks after this election are going to be a real um, precarious moment for our system. Um, do you think that the defenders of the system are well organized enough or strong enough? Uh, and the reason I ask is another consequence of the, or, or another uh, uh, legacy of the Trump era is that every egregious thing that he's done, he's gotten away with. Um, and he does have the Department of Injustice on his behalf working for him. And he does have Mitch McConnell working for him. And the Senate is willing to give him a pass on everything. And while Norm's right, Mitt Romney stood up. Even in Mitt Romney's statement, he did not dare speak the name of Donald Trump, lest he, you know, infuriate him. The Democrats tend to, you know, sigh and and decry what's going on. But is 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 anybody going to actually defend this system? You you talked at the beginning about some of the the changes and the sharp the, the edges of the of the Trump experience. I, I often think about something I call the gifts of Trump. That in, in some ways, if we get through this, he's going to make us better than we were rather than worse. Um, it, it's kind of a knife edge walk. But you talk about defenders of the system. Um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a lifelong Republican. I'm still a registered Republican. I'm a pretty conservative minded person. But one of the things that um, Donald Trump has forced us all to confront is the way in which um, the American... The, the American system had a lot of fault lines that were, or a lot of opportunities that were there for a ruthless person to exploit. We're talking now about, um, for example, voting. You know, the United States Constitution is full of rules forbidding the right to vote to be abridged on this ground or that. It can't be abridged on ground of sex, as the 19th Amendment. It can't be abridged on grounds of race, as the 15th Amendment. Uh, it can't be abridged because you're uh, uh, on account of age, provided you're over 18, it can't be abridged because you live in the District of Columbia. But despite all those bans on various kinds of abridgment, there is no affirmative right to vote in the United States Constitution, um, as there is in the votes, uh, as there is in the constitutions of other democracies. There's a right to vote in some state constitutions, but but many, many not. And um, until quite recently, um, many American states would have large parts of their population not vote at all. I, I, I was I came across this while working on something else. You know, in 1940, we all know Franklin Delano Roosevelt won the solid set. He won the state of South Carolina by 96% of the vote. Like, wow, that's incredible. How many votes did Franklin Delano Roosevelt win in South Carolina in 1940 to get that 1996? In a state with 2 million people, he got 100,000 votes. Um, that is, or he got 96,000, his opponent got 4,000. There were 100,000 votes cast in a state of 2 million 
people. Um, we, have, you know, we have discovered through the Trump years, um, it's actually not quite, Ill no one ever wrote down the law that it's illegal for a president to put public money into his pocket or to direct, um, direct funds toward his businesses. The emoluments clause in the constitution is not a law. It's, a, it's sort of a, it's a, it's a kind of, um, um, uh, it's an overall edict for which impeachment is the only provided remedy because there's never been a statute putting any kind of reality into the emoluments clause. So we're going to come out of this and we're going to have to change some things. And I think um, those, the, one of the uh, challenges that the so-called defense of the system has had is the defenders of the system are a coalition of both some of the most conservative people in American life and some of the most radical. And so it's very hard for us to, uh, to work together. Um, and if we're going to get through this, I think we are going to have to build a new kind of political coalition where um, the radical people acknowledge that the conservatives are more right than the radicals want to think about the underlying worth of the American experiment. And the conservatives are going to have to say, you know, the radicals were more perceptive than we were about some of the operating defects of that system and some of the bolder measures that have to be taken to make, for example, it a reality that America is a democracy. We think it is, but that's not how it's been run. So I'm pleased to say that we've been joined in our conversation by Karen Finney, a former spokesperson for Hillary Clinton, also uh, an astute political commentator. Uh, hi there, Karen. Hello. Good to be with you. Uh, good to be with you. Um, we're sort of 20 minutes into a discussion about whether or not democracy is really at risk uh, based on um, what we've seen for the past few years, but particularly this week with the president's comment about, uh, you know, not guaranteeing a peaceful transition, some of the things that Barr did and so forth. And so I'd like to ask you a question that I just asked Norm and David, um, and that is, do you see this as a real risk or is this kind of election year hysteria? This feels like more of a risk than anything I've seen in my lifetime or can remember my parents, both of whom were involved in the civil rights movement, explain. And, you know, having also uh, lived through and been a, an advisor to Stacey Abrams in her 2018 gubernatorial race, you know, the cumul, I think we can't underestimate the cumulative impact of the things that we have seen this president say when, with regard to, um, the Postal Service, mail-in ballots, questioning the validity, not just of the ballots, but whether or not those ballots will be counted. And we know that has such a suppressive impact potentially. Um, and so that is a real threat to our democracy when you have these messages being repeated over and over and over again uh, from the biggest bully pulpit that we have. In, in this country. And I can share with you from work that I'm doing, certainly among black voters, real concerns. I mean, it is working it is, and, and people are, it looks like we'll be voting in person as a way to try to remedy, um, I think what people see as, as a threat. Um, at the same time, it, what we see from Barr, what we see from Trump and others undermines the credibility I think we can't of of our institutions at a time when um, we are they already have very low credibility with the American people, and it just continues to um, 
to erode people's confidence, uh, not just specifically in Trump. I think we have to be very mindful of that, but in our in our de democratic institutions and their ability to fulfill their obligations to us, we the people. Okay, I, let me start with Norm, but but go around. You know, we now have a uh, five weeks to go, um, uh, and next week is going to see the first of three presidential debates. And then in, I think October 7th, there's a vice presidential debate. Um, typically debates don't have a major impact, although some, sometimes they do. Um, this has been a strange campaign because we have not had candidates sort of out there campaigning as, as they normally do. Um, how important, Norm, do you think the debates are and what would you like to see from Joe Biden or the journalists running the debates? Well, first, uh, I'm skeptical that debates change a lot of votes. We can find a couple of instances where they might have made a difference. Uh, one uh, potentially was when uh, Ronald Reagan uh, took on the issue of age with Walter Mondale. Not that it would have altered the election, but at least diffused a potential uh, issue against him. But as a general matter, I think objectively you could say that Hillary Clinton wiped the floor with Donald Trump last time, and it didn't much matter. Now, I think actually this debate could matter in a couple of ways. One and the most important, I believe, is simply for Joe Biden to show up to perform as he did in the last several uh, primary debates and show that he is more than capable of being the chief executive of the United States. Uh, we know that Trump is going to perform as Trump does. Uh, he is not going to have to do any debate preparation. He will attack Biden. He'll attack Biden's family. Biden has to handle that well uh, with maybe a cool anger and resolve. Uh, but the main thing for Joe Biden at this point, this is if we have any semblance of a fair election, uh, a combination. It's mostly a referendum on Trump, and you have to simply show that you're ready to be president because that referendum works against Trump. As David said, this is the most unpopular first-term president we've ever had. Uh, I think the second thing you wanna do to whatever degree there is a comparison between the two is to show that the one who is confused the one who actually had trouble uh, with a mental acuity test is not Joe Biden. And I think there are a lot of ways in which he can do that and take that on and uh, show that it, even in a direct comparison, this is a much, much better choice to be president. And I would just add, if there's one other part of this that fits into the referendum notion, Trump has been deliberately uh, divisive, racist, uh, trying to double down on that relatively small base. And uh, Biden, I think, by showing that he really does want to be inclusive, uh, is going to possibly sway some voters who are just tired of everything that we've had uh, in the last four years. So it matters at the margins, but I believe only at the margins. David? I think the, the story of the Trump years has been... Um, it's the answer to every question is, well, listen, you do a poll. Are, are you in favor of, pre of President Trump's plan to domesticate yaks? Answer, 42% yes, 52% no. 
Are, are, are you in favor of, of Donald Trump's plan to uh, put gardenias down the uh, middle of the George Washington Parkway? 42% yet, yes, 52% no. Just it's blah, blah, blah. Trump, 42, 52 is, is, uh, is the answer. Um, and um, I think that's going to happen in these debates. I mean, I think uh, the Trump record is, uh, of not only of um, disaster with coronavirus, disaster with the economy, but his personality, he's, he's insisted everybody talk about him. And so we all, we all have our views and um, a little over two fifths of the country approve and a little over a majority disapprove. Uh, so the only, I mean, you know, maybe if there's a brain seizure on the stage, I, I remember um, once uh, covering a campaign where a senior party official was uh, dealing with a less successful uh, novice candidate uh, in a, in a tough year for the incumbent. And the senior official was told this novice candidate, look, when you're running against an incumbent in a tough year, there are only two issues, her record, and you're not a kook. And then the punchline was, and you're failing point two. Um, but that's, I think that's going to be true. You know, the, it's going to be the Trump record. And then Trump is going to find something disqualifying uh, about Joe Biden. If Joe Biden can avoid doing anything disqualifying, which shouldn't be too hard, it's going to be all about Trump as everything for four years has been all about Trump. Karen. You know, look, I think I agree with David. I mean, I think that we are in our partisan corners. So very much of this is uh, baked in um, at this moment. I think what will matter about the debates are the following. Um, number one, I agree, you know, Vice President Biden has to project, continue to project competence uh, the ability to lead and to remind people that there is a different kind of leadership that used to exist for those who want that again, because even what, you know, vote Trump voters who are saying they may plan, they plan to potentially vote for him again, who may be on the fence, uh, are exhausted from the drama of Trump. Um, and, and, and his mishandling of COVID is certainly one of the biggest factors for them in rethinking, uh, their vote. At the same time, I think the, the biggest challenge will be, I think we're going to see a repeat of, frankly, what we saw with Trump in the recent town hall. It will be a barrage of lot, bigoted, racist, race-baiting lies, because um, I don't think he'll be, I think his advisors are trying to convince him to control some of that and to not get into talking about the need for a 1776 project and denying not talking about slavery so much and protecting the suburbs from black people moving in. I mean, some of the real, the dog whistles that have really intensified uh, from him in the last uh, couple of months. Um, but I, I don't think he'll be able to contain himself. And so I, I, I agree that I don't think they will matter much. I think they will show the same contrast between, you know, the last four years that we've had where it has been all about Donald Trump and not about anybody else. Uh, and, you know, if Biden is able to present and project, uh, again, this competent leadership, but also I think the challenge is how do you debate against a, a liar when you are not bound to the truth and when you are trying to debate someone and you actually are bound to the truth, I think that is the challenge. And how that challenge is handled in this debate, I think that is where what matters. And I think that may be where we have one or two uh, interesting or significant moments. Okay. I'd like to do two more sort of rounds of quick questions. Um, as you look forward from here to the election, both with regard to the presidential election and the 
uh, imperative of defeating Trump, uh, but also to the congressional elections, particularly the Senate. Um, you know, most of the indicators that we normally have are, are, are positive from the point of view of opponents of Trump. Biden has a seven or eight or greater point lead nationally and a fairly substantial lead in a number of key swing states. Uh, and I, I saw the economists' projection on on the Senate, and they're projecting a sort of, I think that it was 51.4 seats for the Democrats, um, uh, you know, could be as many, uh, four or five higher than that. Are, do, those numbers would normally give it one a degree of confidence about an outcome. Of course, we remember the 2016 campaign too. Um, are you confident? And if you're not, what do you think needs to be done that isn't being done? So I will say I'm spending most of my time now working with two task forces on election crises to try and head off some of the worst case scenarios, but also to try and make sure that voters understand uh, the best ways for them to vote and the ways to do so without having their votes invalidated. Um, but you know we have to worry about disruption of the election itself. What I would say is if you go back to Bart Gelman's piece, a lot of it revolves around states trying to manipulate, Republican governors and state legislators and election officials trying to manipulate results so that you throw the election to Congress. And that's one where the best remedy is to have a Democratic Senate with a Democratic House. So if there are contested slates of electors, you're not gonna have a deadlock there. Uh, Getting a Democratic Senate becomes important for almost every element uh, of governance over the next few years, uh, in particular because if there's a Republican Senate, we know how Mitch McConnell and others will react. They will try and block everything that Biden wants to do. But I would add one other element to this. And by the way, David, I would say that you know the, the potential wins for Democrats have expanded. They include seats like those in Alaska, or the one in Alaska, which is a real possibility for Democrats, an uphill battle, but still a real possibility. But we also have to worry about a few House races because if somehow this election ended up in the House of Representatives, they can select a president by state. It takes 26 votes. And right now, Republicans have 26 state delegation majorities. So if I were investing in one race right now, it would be the Florida 15th Congressional District. Florida has a 14 to 13 Republican advantage. That could turn it around, and that might make all the difference in a presidential contest. There are seats in Michigan and Iowa that could make a difference in terms of who has majorities in the state. These are things we never would have thought about before, but they matter. Uh, but, you know, as important as anything right now is to make sure that as we get all of these votes cast by mail, that voters know what the pitfalls are. In Pennsylvania, it's understanding that you fill out the inner security ballot and then sign the outer ballot or your vote can be invalidated. And that could mean as many as 100 or 150,000, which could also make all the difference. It's getting that word out and word in different states. I'm looking at all of those things, uh, but also hoping that we don't get paramilitary forces out there trying to intimidate voters and uh, other disruptions that could take place. 
much less the Russians putting a thumb on the scales uh, through various means. David. It has to be stressed. I mean, Donald Trump's plan of disruption and denial and um, corruption of the vote is 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 the only plan that's available to him. So, of course, he's following it. Um, but it's not actually a very good plan and not one likely in the end to work. Because just to go through the scenarios Norm described, I mean, supposing it's you don't with pretty conservative assumptions, you can get Biden up to a six, eight or 10 million vote popular vote advantage. If 145 million Americans vote, in 2020, which is a good guess. And if Biden gets 50 and a half percent of those and and Trump gets in line with the polls, about 40, 42 percent, I mean, that it's going to be 10 million votes. And maybe it's, it's half that. It's going to be a massive popular vote um, advantage to Biden. I just don't think after this year of COVID, after this year of dep- economic depression, after this year in which Americans have gotten used to going into the streets to protest, that... Um, an, a, an attempt to use the quirks and abuses of power in this ancient constitution, which was not written with democracy in mind, that that's going to succeed as a way of holding on to meaningful and effective power in a way that it, it did in the much more placid circumstances of 2016 and 17. I, I don't know about that. So the thing I worry about is not that Donald Trump is going to steal the election and proceed to a second term where he does all kinds of things. Uh, what I worry about is that Donald Trump will try to steal the election, plunge the country into a kind of chaos in the face of a, a nakedly illegitimate presidency. Uh, and, th- and, then, and that's going to be the trouble, discrediting America in the world. And as Norman was just saying, alluding to these um, armed gangs, I don't think we live in that kind of world. But we, there are shooters out there who, ha- um, who self-radicalize with things they read on the internet, and I worry about them. Karen. Oh, um, well, I'd say a couple of things. You know, I have for some time now been trying to sound the alarm that I think we cannot assume that the activism we're seeing in the streets will mean activity at the ballot box. Um, when you people, we have such a crisis of faith in this country and people believing and viewing voting as a way to change things. It is one thing to take to the streets to feel heard and seen. It is another thing to educate yourself in the ways that Norm was just talking about, to understand, to make a plan to vote, to understand um voting early, registering to vote, checking your registration, tracking your ballot. And again, for black and brown voters, we have to remember that the Herculean voting is a Herculean all day test. That is why Michelle Obama said, take a brown paper bag lunch with you, right? We know, and we, and I, I think we are already seeing this president trying to steal this election in front of our very eyes. And I think part of what makes people feel even more cynical is who is stopping him? What, who is stopping what is happening with the postal service and, and removal of post boxes? The only thing we have is our vote. And so I think the Herculean task between now and election is to both set expectations around some of the scenarios that we're talking about, because I don't think we're gonna have an answer on election night. This is not going to be um, like a typical election where you see people at their in on the cable news channels with numbers coming in and the and the board movement. I think we have to all be prepared uh, for for what the quote unquote election will look like. But then also to turn people out to vote, to vote not just for the top of the ticket, but to vote down ballot and to understand why that matters for them. I can I can just tell you from the work that I'm doing and seeing that in and of itself 
and not taking for granted all of the data models and all of what we assume about the level of hatred and disgust and anger uh, about what is happening in this country, that that will necessarily translate into people voting. You know, we made this mistake, the, the Clinton campaign made this mistake to our detriment in 2016. Obviously, there were a number of factors around our loss. However, if I think about places like Michigan and Wisconsin, where again, uh, the black vote could have made the margin of difference uh, and the work that was not done to sufficiently reach out to black and brown voters that in some cases I think may be repeating itself in certain places to make sure that people have access to voting uh, and have confidence that their vote will be counted. I think that is one of the biggest tasks that we have, but and, and to add to what Norm said, and know how they have to do, what they have to do. Um, I, I think none of us should take any comfort in the polls. I certainly don't. Um, and we have to, you know, have such a wide margin that there is no question uh, that Trump, uh, if, he, if he loses, that he has lost. I think we cannot take anything for granted. And I am that is my biggest concern at this moment is that people become too comfortable in the, with the polls. Um, good point. So we've just got three or four minutes left. So just kind of a minute each, but you know, we, we hear a lot about October surprises um, and it's a discussion that we've been having on an ongoing basis on the podcast with different people talking about whether it's more COVID or whether it's, you know, getting Amy Coney Barrett or somebody else, approved before the election or something else. What are you um, concerned about uh, keeping an eye on uh, with regard to October surprises, Norm? So uh, we could see many. It's pretty clear that the Hunter Biden October surprise is already pretty much fizzled, but I can expect a John Durham report that will try and shift the attention. I do think we might get a, a surge in COVID. I wanna make two other quick points, David. One is, I think Florida may be the key here in the election. If we can get a decisive Biden victory in Florida early and they start processing their absentee ballots fairly early, that's gonna be much harder for Trump to try and declare victory uh, with some other states where we don't have the votes by mail counted so early. The second point is I'm more worried about a November surprise as well, that if Trump does lose, he is going to do everything he can to make the transition uh, an absolute disaster and to have all kinds of people in his corrupt administration destroying evidence and, uh, and trying to cover up things. And we need to be prepared not just for the election and an October surprise, but to make sure that we have an orderly transition and that people who are miscreants are dealt with. Thank you, David. Yeah, so in the middle, in the summer of 2018, Donald Trump was presiding over the best American economy since the late 1990s. Um, country was uh, as at peace as it has ever been in the post 9-11 era. Military casualty, casualties were running, were, were running low in America's very, various foreign commitments. And Donald Trump was at about 45%. So if you say, could the, if the president could by some miracle bring back in the next 40 days, the economy of the summer of 1998, that would be quite a surprise. And where would he be? In the mid 40s, because it, it's never been about that. So the, the, the electoral surprises that I would worry about are not something that Donald Trump is going to do. And indeed, the problem with the Trump people is because they watch so much Fox News, um, they, 
Fox, they're not just lying to others. They are lying to themselves. They're into this kind of, um, you know, Marvel comic universe where things are important to them. No one cares about. Um, and uh, that to discover that, for example, Joe Biden, like just about every president ever has some, you know, uh, relatives who've cut corners and tried to make a buck out of the president. Well, that describes every, you know, there's always a brother. There's always a son-in-law. There's, you know, every, every president has that. Um, what's unusual in the Trump, in, in, the Trump presidency is the president who is the uh, corner cutter, not some relative somewhere. I don't think any of those things will matter. But here's the thing to worry about. And I think this is this is probably the greatest structural risk to Democrats. And as Norm says, it takes place in the state of Florida. Um, Karen has again and again alluded to a coalition of black and brown people, but that doesn't really exist. Um, that there are tensions within the Democratic coalition. And because uh, they... Um, and it is real is a difficult coalition to keep together. And I worry about um, street violence, street disturbances, street protests of a kind that alienate um, middle class people, not who are not white, uh, but who have houses, who have mortgages, who have uh, a stake in the society and things to worry about, and who worry, does the democratic coalition look disturbing or scary? And so uh, an important project for democratic politicians is to um, make sure that those kinds of events do not happen to the extent they're able to prevent it and to the extent that they are to make sure that they condemn it and that in a Biden administration, the, the force, force of law will be deployed against people who damage private property, disturb, uh, disturb people as they enjoy uh, the normal amenities of urban life. Well, I'll put that differently because I, there is a coalition of, of black and brown voters. And I think there is overwhelmingly, particularly if we think about in the aftermath of the announcement that there will be no formal action uh, in the case of Breonna Taylor, a feeling that if you are black in this country or you have brown skin in this country, there is no justice. You cannot get justice. Um, and the, the, the pain and the, and the generational rage um, what I worry for an October surprise is twofold. One, it's not going to be something that we see uh, on the streets or on our TV screens. It's already happening in the form of, it can be it, Russian interference in the form of what we saw in 2016, sort of the, the use of social media and the sort of underground tactics of um, uh, exploiting the cracks that do already exist around race and gender, specifically when you think, you know, using, um, we saw this, you know, with Hillary uh, around the crime bill, something she had didn't even have anything, you know, she had never even voted on it. So I, I those types of messages and, and the exploitation of the fractures that exist, that are those things that we know are already happening underneath the surface, uh, that to my mind is not a surprise, but that is one of the things I worry about the most. The October surprise, though, it is akin to what David said, and that is there is a real difference on our streets between people who are peacefully protesting and trying to make their voices heard and violence. And I think most voters know that and understand that. We are also seeing the infiltration uh, of these peaceful protests by people, bad actors from multiple, from different sides uh, who have different agendas. The, the likelihood of Donald of Trump and his people to exploit that and to try to actually foment the kind of violence and create the kind of fear with white suburban voters. And I think of those that couple who spoke at the Republican National Convention uh, who had been who are waving their guns in front of relatively peaceful 
Black Lives Matter protesters who were pro on their way to, frankly, the the, the mayor's house uh, in that instance to protest. I think that is what he that, to my mind, is one of the creating that kind of um, violence around um, racial tension uh, and 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 those racial those fractures in our country and and stoking the fear in very visceral ways for people. Um, that that's the October surprise I worry about the most because not only because of the impact on the election, but the long-term damage that that uh, is doing to our, already doing to our country and our ability to, to come back together and heal as a nation. Um, yeah, those are certainly a source of concern. And I, I, I would underscore that some of that violence is um, coming from the far right and some of it is being provoked precisely to trigger the kind of reactions you're talking about, David, and at the same time uh, provide the, uh, the the rationale for uh, uh, the government to step in and and in so doing potentially um, uh, create disincentives to 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 voting or to going into cities uh, at the time of an election. So I think we need to be careful of that. And by the way. I, I've noticed, and this is purely anecdotal, but in the past couple of days um, on social media, a large number of people saying, well, the, you can't get rid of a fascist with voting. Now, I mean, that seems like, you know, uh, a subject worthy perhaps of some discussion, but it, but it's, I've gotten it from so many different sources that I, you know, it's, I, I'm concluding this is exactly the kind of disinformation um campaign that Karen was referring to where you know people will try Russians and others will try to use whatever rationale they can to to get people not to vote uh, or to you know provoke division uh, and we we do have to be aware of that there's obviously massive amounts going on on a daily basis and in the next five weeks, um, it's going to be a fraught period. And indeed, I think for all the reasons said here, the couple of weeks following uh, or perhaps the couple of months following are also going to be fraught. We're going to keep tracking these things with special conversations like this one. Uh, and I very much hope that we can be joined again later uh, in October by Norm and by David and by Karen, who are three of the smartest people that I know of out there observing, commenting and trying to make a difference here. Um, so thank you to each of you for joining us. Thank you to everybody out there listening for joining us. To find out what other special kind of programming we've got, go to the dsrnetwork.com. And if you're there and you want to support this, certainly go and click on the membership link uh, and provide some support in times like this. Uh, this kind of programming makes a difference. Uh, and, and we can only do it if you support us. So uh, thanks to all of you who do that and take that seriously. And we look forward to joining you all again soon. In the meantime, um, take good care of yourselves. Be safe. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. That was a great.